The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. So, we have been thinking about that and many more things. Let me invite you uh, to open with me in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, you'll find that on page 961 of a Bible in the Purack. If you need one, go ahead and grab it. Uh, we were in 1 Corinthians 15 last week uh, as we see Paul summarizing the gospel. We're looking again at there as we are emphasizing this morning, as I said again and again, the resurrection, the reality of Easter, and the empty tomb. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The tomb is empty, and we want to learn of that and declare it together and apply that to our lives as we do really every Lord's Day, which is a declaration of Christ's resurrection, but especially today as we're walking through the Apostles' Creed line by line and section by section to ask the question, what is it that the Christian church believes? What is it that we confess together? Today we are learning about our confession of faith that Christ is risen. Uh, one other note about the Apostles' Creed is that you will notice as you look at the Creed in your bulletin perhaps uh, that the uh, the Apostles' Creed summarizes the work of Christ in two ways. One, by his work of humiliation as he comes to earth, obeys the Father, Father suffers and dies and is buried, his descent into hell, he is humiliated. But today we begin his estate of exaltation as he rises. And the first step of the exaltation is a literal rising from the dead. But then it goes on to speak of his ascent, his heavenly session, his glorious reappearing. So we've made a transition in the content of the Apostles' Creed, moving from going down in the state of humiliation to going up in the state of exaltation, and the major turn for that is, of course, the resurrection itself. So, the great Presbyterian reformer John Knox called the resurrection the chief article of our faith. Without a resurrection, there is no Christian faith. Without a resurrection, there is no Christianity Without a resurrection, the Apostle Paul says later on in this chapter, without a resurrection, why would you even bother to be here? Go do something else. Go play golf. Go have an early brunch. Go do something else if Christ isn't risen. But if He is, then that changes everything, doesn't it? If Christ is indeed risen, as the church confesses and as scriptures testify, well, we want to see that today. So, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the Word as we seek to understand it today. Heavenly Father, we thank You, our great God, that You and Your mercy have given us the Scriptures that we may not walk around blind, willfully arrogant of Your truth, but rather seeing, seeing by the eyes of faith and having our minds illuminated to come to know You. We thank You, Father, that You are not some distant deity, but rather the God of creation, the God of revelation, who reveals yourself both in the world that we can see, but especially in the scriptures as you tell us who you are, what you're like, what you require from us. And so, Lord, today we would see the truth of your resurrected Son. So come now in the power of the scriptures and in the authority of your Holy Spirit to give us understanding to illuminate our minds and our hearts that we might receive with faith the truth of your word. We pray in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, our resurrected Savior. Amen. And now hear the word of God. 1 Corinthians 15. 
Verse 1, the resurrection of Christ. This is the Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God abides forever. Keep your Bible open here in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I'll just make a general comment to you that 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter in all of the New Testament to describe uh, not the history of the resurrection. If you want to know about the history of the resurrection, you would go to the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains what the resurrection means and its deep and abiding eternal significance for the Christian believer, not only as we believe in Christ's resurrection, but as a result, our resurrection one day as well. And we'll come back to that in the Apostles' Creed because the Creed goes back there. Uh, But today, we want to think about what Paul says that Christ was, in verse 3, sorry, verse 4, raised. Raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, I'll just tell you by way of kind of kind of personal biography, that I was raised in a church uh, that did not actually believe in the resurrection. I was raised in a church that taught that the resurrection is a metaphor. The resurrection is a metaphor, a myth, a fable, a tale representative of the glory of God to, to give you a you know, better life. Now, historically, the church I grew up in, that is not what the faith of that church believed throughout history, but it was a church that had succumbed over the ages to uh, an infecting into the church that says, you know what, the Bible says that, but we're far more sophisticated than that these days, aren't we? I mean, come on. Resurrection? Nobody actually believes that. And I wonder if you've ever encountered that mentality yourself or wondered is the resurrection a story ultimately a fable ultimately a tale some sort of Aesop's fable in a larger story of you know what life is really all about people of God let's be clear the Christian church believes in a literal physical historical bodily resurrection of Jesus who according to the Apostles Creed and according to the scriptures died and was so dead that he was buried. And that three days later, he emerged from the tomb, no longer dead, but actually alive. 
let's say it with clear eyes. We believe in the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead of our Lord Jesus. Each of the four gospel accounts narrate the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Empty tomb and corroborating eyewitness testimony. The Apostle Paul is also emphasizing the corroborating eyewitness testimony. The book of Acts presents the gospel message as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the center of a community of faith that was transformed by the belief in Jesus that is willing to undergo extreme persecutions and sufferings because they believed in a resurrected Christ. And if they didn't really believe it, they wouldn't really undergo all of that suffering. The rest of the New Testament, the epistles of the New Testament, expand upon the truth of the resurrection by applying the truth of the gospel and the resurrection to Christian believers that as they go about their lives and gather in Christian community, they gather as people of the resurrected Savior and they continue to do so today. The Christian church is the gathered community of the people of God who say, He is risen. Actually and really and truly, and it has impacted my life to such a degree that I want to say it again. Christ is risen. So, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is saying, this is what we believe. This is what the Christian church believes. This is what the church has believed from the beginning. As the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, says, as he writes to the church in Corinth, I want you to believe the message that I received. I want you to believe the same truth about Jesus that I believe, which is that Christ, in verse 3, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, verse 4, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then the Apostle goes on to narrate the, the varied ways that the Gospels and the book of Acts present the resurrection appearances of Jesus. So when we say we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we do not believe that Christ was raised and then immediately ascended. No, he was on earth for 40 days before he ascended. And during that time period appeared to many witnesses that the Apostle Paul says several, several years later, those people are still alive. They can say it for themselves. Christ is truly risen. Now what I want to walk through, though, that I think is fascinating there in verse 4 is that Paul says that Christ died in our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised, look again in verse 4, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now pause for a second. Paul, by divine inspiration, is writing New Testament Scriptures. So what Scriptures is he talking about? Not the New Testament, but the Old. The Apostle Paul says what has happened to Jesus by way of his messianic rule and death, burial, and resurrection is what God has promised throughout the Scriptures, namely the Old Testament. So what is it that Paul has in mind when he thinks of Old Testament Scriptures proclaiming the reality of the resurrection? That Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Which ones? And where does the Old Testament talk about a risen Savior? Well, perhaps Psalm 16, verse 10, as David prays, Lord, you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Maybe he's thinking of Hosea 6, verse 2, speaking of Israel corporately, but the Son truly on the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. 
or maybe the Apostle Paul has in mind what Jesus has in mind when he cites Jonah. Jesus says that the Son of Man will provide to you the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for how long? Three days. And rise. The whole narrative of Jonah is a representation of the truth of the resurrection. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 40, as the sign of Jonah, as it was with Jonah, so will it be with the Son of Man. Jesus looked back into the Old Testament to say the resurrection is a reality that is promised that is going to be revealed to you. But here's the problem. Jesus was raised and presented himself to thousands of eyewitnesses, including those people who didn't want him to be raised. The people that wanted him dead in the first place. And what's interesting is that those Jewish authorities were not persuaded by the reality of the resurrection. In fact, they participated early on in an attempt to cover up the reality of the resurrection. So you could look, for example, at Matthew 28, verse 13. The soldiers who were in the garden tomb, they go to the chief priests in Matthew 28, verse 13, and they report what happened. They tell the chief priests, and the chief priests respond, well, I guess we should all believe in Jesus and become Christians. No. They respond this. Tell people that his disciples came and stole the body. And here's some money to pay you off. Like, that's actually what the Jewish authorities told the guards to do. Here's some money. Just say they came and took the body. Meaning, these guards have to willingly accept the title of the worst guards in history. You think about that? Like, these Roman guards are told, hey, you guys, stay here. You stay out here and make sure the dead guy in there doesn't come out. Okay? But now you have to turn around and say, yeah, that was our job, but we let it happen. All right. They came and took him. They came and took him. Now, understand this. Those guards were not there because they wanted to keep Jesus inside as if they assumed he was going to come out. They weren't there because they said, we want to keep this resurrection thing from happening. No, the reason why they were there is to keep people from stealing the body. That's the point. They didn't believe in resurrection. You understand that? They were there to keep other people out from bringing the dead body of Jesus out so that people couldn't say, oh, he's not there. He's risen. So the big cover-up is just say they, they overtook you, and uh, you know, even though you're professional guards, the fishermen overtook you, stole the body, and here's some money to pay you off for the rest of your life so you'll never tell a soul. Really? That's not convincing, is it? But you know what? That was just the first of many attempts to attempt to undermine the reality of the resurrection. And, and you've heard that and other theories. There are loads of theories to attempt to say this whole resurrection business isn't actually true. And the first one is the stolen body theory. Perhaps somebody stole the body. That's what they attempted to say and paid them off at the beginning to do. Okay, but who stole it and why would they? If the Jews stole the body, all they would have to do is say, no, 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 Jesus isn't alive. See, here's his body. We took it. He's still dead. Or if the Romans stole the body, they would only have to do the same thing and keep this whole Jesus is Lord business from spreading all over the globe. 
and keep people bowing the knee to Caesar. The whole stolen body theory doesn't work if there's a dead body that was stolen to present and prove there's not a resurrection, right? Well, there's additional theories. Maybe you've heard of them. This one's called the swoon theory. It says that when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't actually die. He fainted. And he fainted into a deep unconsciousness. But when he was buried, it was such a pleasant temperature in the tomb that it revived him. And the swoon theory says he was never actually dead. He just fainted. That first appeared in the 1700s and reappeared in the 1960s as an attempt to undermine the reality of the erection. Another one, the projection theory, it goes something like this. The disciples wanted it to happen so badly that they just projected the reality into existence. Their deep desire to have a resurrected Lord created the belief that there was a resurrection. He wasn't actually raised, of course. They just really believed he was. And because they wanted him to be so deeply, they believed that he was. Another one is called the mislaid theory that actually says that what happened on Easter morning is that the women went to the wrong tomb. That in the fullness of their grief and in the fullness of their sorrow, they just got mistaken as to which tomb to go to. Lots of tombs. They all look the same. After all, hysterical women. It's very offensive, this theory to women. But the mislaid theory, they just went to the wrong place. And you know what? They get more ridiculous from here. I'm almost done with these theories. One is that Jesus had an identical twin that was hiding for 33 years, who then, ta-da, right? Like, identical twin. Or the idea that the disciples are so filled with grief that they create the lie to comfort themselves. My last one is my personal favorite, that there was particular bacteria in the water of Jerusalem that caused them to hallucinate the entire thing. Okay, so, but from the beginning, people have been attempting to say, it can't be a resurrection. It's got to be some other explanation. It's got to be some other thing. But Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 15, is saying, no, no, no. Don't be ashamed to say what it is that we actually believe. We believe that on the third day, the Jesus who died, the same Jesus in the same human body who died, emerged from the tomb alive. And the New Testament serves as witness to the reality of the same truth. The Christian church has believed the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead from the beginning. And that's what we mean when we say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, and in the Apostles' Creed, we confess on the third day he rose again. Now, again, there's this temptation to say, okay, but you know, 2,000 years ago, people were much more given over to, you know, these fantastical spiritual realities, and, you know, they believed in those types of things then, but we're in a much more, you know, postmodern age, we're post-industrialized, we're a Western nation, we are not given over to these types of fantasy, like, we're far better than that, right? What you understand, though, that people did not expect resurrection in the first century just as much as they don't expect it today. That's why it was such a wonderful thing. Like, it's not the case that resurrections were just going on all the time in the first century before Jesus was born and lived and died and afterwards too. Resurrection was not a thing. In fact, the Greeks... They totally rejected the entire concept because they said, your body is like a prison for your soul, and once you die, you throw out the prison, so why would we want to bring back the prison of the body in a resurrection? No, no, no. The Greeks didn't believe in resurrection as a concept at all. And the Jews 
their understanding of resurrection was not an individual personal resurrection of soul and body, but rather a corporate resurrection of the entity of the people of Israel combined. That they spoke of the resurrection of the people, but not individually, corporately. People didn't believe in resurrection 2,000 years ago either, which is why they had to come up with these other ways of explaining away the reality. Because, look, the resurrection is something that you are presented with and you will either by faith believe or choose to reject. And it's just a question of Christ is risen. What say you? Do you believe? In the resurrection, God is declared to be the true Son and Messiah. In the resurrection, Jesus Christ is vindicated by His sacrifice. The Father accepts the sacrifice of Christ, raises Him to life in confirmation that His sacrifice was true and right and good. By His resurrection, Jesus demonstrates, as He says, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The resurrection is the declaration, the vindication, the demonstration of Jesus Christ. Listen to what one Jewish historian says. Jewish historian now, not a believer in Christ, a secular observer of history in Palestine, Jewish, but not on the side of the scribes. This is what Josephus reports about Jesus in the first century. He writes, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds, a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. And he drew over many Jews and many Greeks. He claimed to be the Messiah. And when, upon the accusation of Jewish authorities, Pilate had him condemned to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not stop loving him, for he appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has to this day still not disappeared. Secular historians report the reality of this in the first century. So what we want to say then is that Jesus Christ's resurrection on the third day he rose from the dead is still what we believe, as we did in the first century, as we did in the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the 21st century. This is what we believe, and we believe that the world needs this witness as we say this is what we believe. We're not ashamed of it, and in fact, we're so unashamed of it that we want to just not believe it for ourselves, but also tell you. Jesus Christ is risen for you if you would put your hope in him. So, that's what we believe. Now let's ask this question. What is the benefit of a resurrected Savior? Like, why is it a good thing <laughs> that Jesus is raised from the dead? You got about 10 hours for me to tell you? The New Testament is the answer to that question. The whole of the New Testament is all that. Okay? We don't have that much time, so how about two? Two benefits. And if you suffer, two and a half, actually. Two and a half. What is the benefit of a resurrected Savior? It's, first of all, this. That for those who trust in the resurrected Savior, there is the assurance of the forgiveness of their sins. Isn't there? A resurrected Savior means that there is forgiveness for sins. Now, Many of us, at one time or another, or perhaps still today, we think about our faith, we think about Christianity, we think about Jesus, we think about Jesus relative to us, we think about our eternal life, and at the end of it, we just kind of wring our hands and we say, you know what, I don't know about all this stuff. 
I'm a little unsure. I just hope at the end of the day, it'll work out for me. I just hope at the end of the day, I believed enough or, or was good enough, or I just hope. I hope so. I hope so. I don't know for sure, but I hope so. Dear friends, listen to me very carefully. Every single one of us at time and again have tender thoughts and insecurities about these realities. We think that it is possible to sin ourselves out of God's grace. That there is a limit of mercy that God has for us. And we think, even if God's mercy is as the ocean, the ocean is not an infinite amount of water. It could be drained, and God's mercy for me could be drained, and I would be left, at the end of the day, answerable for my sins. What hangs in the balance of the resurrection is the reality of the forgiveness of your sins. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says later on, it's in verse 15 of the same chapter, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and tragically, you're still in your sins. But if Christ is raised, and He is, that means that for you to put your trust in Him assures you of the forgiveness of your sins, all of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, your most heinous sins, the one that you are the only one that knows about. Those two. The resurrected Savior means that there is true and full forgiveness. If there is no substitute and no Savior, then that means that God will count my sins against me and I have to answer for them, every single one of them. The punishment for my sin will be met out upon my head and my debt will be collected. But because Christ has been risen, there no longer remains a penalty of your sins. There no longer remains punishment for your sins. There no longer remains debt for any of your sins. When Jesus was raised, it was because the Father accepted the sacrifice. That means there is not one sin. There is not one sin that remains upon you that you will answer for. Because Christ has answered for all of them. Listen to me very carefully. Some people say, yeah, 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 but not me. That's good for somebody else, but you don't know me. And you don't know my circumstances, and you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. Dear friends, if you are a Christian believer who trusts in Jesus Christ, if your sins were too much for Christ to pay for, he would still be dead. If you were too great a sinner, he would still be in the grave. But he's not. And therefore, anyone who trusts has the full assurance of the forgiveness of all of their sins. Or as the Apostle Paul says, and we called it out earlier in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. No judgment. No condemnation. The sweetest news ever is that those who look by faith in Jesus have their sins forgiven. The gospel message is a message of grace and forgiveness and assurance that you should cling to and hold to, not with wringing hands saying, Oh boy, I hope, I hope, I hope. No, 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 dear friends. Open your eyes, lift your heads. Christ is risen, and that means for sure your sin is forgiven. And you say, that sounds too good. Well, that's the point, isn't it? It really is that wonderful. 
that you and I have a right standing with God, not by our efforts, not by our works, not by our skill, but by the work of Christ alone. And that means that the mess that you have, the mess that you and I both have in our lives, the things that bring us guilt and shame, we can't fix them. It means that the answer is not in us. Our bitterness, our unforgiveness, our anger, our lust, our pride, all these things that bring us sin and shame and burden and weigh us down, we do not possess the power of life and death and the forgiveness of sins. You can't resurrect anything, but Christ can. And He does. That's the good news of the Gospel, that by His death and resurrection, He gives to you the full assurance. Secondly, the first is assurance, what the resurrection provides. Assurance, the second one is hope. Hope. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christians are, among all descriptions, people of hope. A hope that will meet all manner of circumstances, all manner of suffering and sorrow and sighing and burden and tribulation, and still have hope, as the apostle says, a living hope. We have that assurance that these things will not ultimately crush us because Christ is alive, because He has conquered the grave, because death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Why? Up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph over His foes. Christ is the victor. And because we have placed our trust in this great champion, we have an eternal hope. The gospel provides to you, as a Christian believer, a mighty hope and promise that the final word over your life is life and not death. Hope. In the resurrection of Christ, it was proved that there was a man who could not be contained by death, could not be ruled by Satan, by the power of corruption, who is stronger than the grave and death and hell, that the gates of the realm of the dead closed upon him on Friday and Sunday. He threw the gates of heaven open for all who would trust in him. Assurance, hope, and lastly, half of one, I said two and a half. The resurrection is a, a deposit, a down payment, an initial indication that what has happened to Jesus by his literal physical resurrection from the dead is what will happen to you as a Christian. But that's coming up still in the Apostles' Creed when we say resurrect in body. So, people of God, Church of Jesus Christ, what do you believe? We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day, literally, physically, historically, bodily, for the forgiveness of our sins, to give us eternal assurance and an unending hope. Don't be ashamed of it. Rejoice in it. You have a Savior, a living Savior, and His name is Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You that You have given Your Son to us that we might know that by His victory over the grave, we too shall live through faith in Him, and that we are able to meet, regardless of the circumstances, all things with hope. So, Lord, fill us with that great assurance and with that
unending hope that we might be a resurrection people, a people of Christ unashamed of our confession, but willing to say it before a watching world and also offer it freely to them, the glory of Jesus. We thank you for that now in his matchless name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.